Happy Sabbath. How are y'all doing? Man, that cool weather, right? It's, you step outside the house and it almost just hits you right in the face. It's fantastic. It's like the best wake up, you know, call you could get, right? You step outside and it's just like, oh, okay. All right, I need to go back inside and put on a jacket. Nobody had that experience this week? No? It's just me. I'm, I'm just bold. I'm just like, nah, it looks, it looks kind of light out. I think I can probably get away with a short sleeve. Step outside. Nope, it's a jacket day. It's definitely a jacket day. Hey, I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time visiting, I'm glad you're here. If, this is, if you're a long-time visitor, so many friendly faces. I know you're smiling behind those masks. It's always great to be able to come together and worship together in the house of the Lord. Amen? This past week, I was thinking of all of the good things that have come about because of the change in our world over the last year. You might think, well, what? There's no, certainly there's no good things that have come about based off of what we've been through together over the last year. And I said, well, I can think of three things. First is, people are more aware of their personal hygiene. Somebody say amen. I mean, I wasn't quite aware that there were people out there who weren't washing their hands. I did not know that. I thought everyone used hand sanitizer. But man, if, if we just get out of this thing and we're just more conscious of our hygiene, praise the Lord. Amen? That's a major positive. But that's on the lowest end of my list of three. The second one. The second one is, I mean, it's, it's kind of there, right? Those of you who have to travel a lot for work will, will understand this. The invention of Zoom. Now, some of you might be Zoomed out. You might be like, no, I don't want to sit behind a screen anymore. But I would argue it's not because of Zoom. It's because you just want to be able to go out and hang out with some friends a little bit more often. Because Zoom is actually a tremendous positive when you can sit in a meeting and waist down, you're in your pajamas, but waist up, you're, you're dressed like you're in the office. I mean, it is fantastic. And so that's a major positive that has come into our world. I hope that there are more companies that have realized, wait, we can just have more people work from home. And then it's, you roll out of bed, you throw on a button down, and you just, hey, hey, yep, I'm ready. I've been up since 4.30 this morning, you know. Just, but Zoom, it's a positive, right? But the third is the most important. And I'm sitting there thinking about this just this week, and all of a sudden I can't help but smile, and I start to nod my head that maybe one of the greatest enemies of mankind has been vanquished over the last year, and that is standing in lines. If you think about it, standing in lines is like a double whammy of horrific. Because why do we stand in lines? We stand in lines to buy something, right? In fact, I mean, there's, there's like a national holiday, Black Friday, right? Now, I don't participate in Black Friday. I think it's terrible. But, I mean, some people stand in line for like almost an entire night, right? Some, I mean, depending on the product, if it's a new phone or some new technology that's going to change our lives as we know it, right? We might camp out to get something. Or if we love our kids and they really want that, whatever it is, we might camp out or, right? Lines. It's terrible staying in lines. We stand in lines to buy things we want or to buy things for somebody else that wants it. We stand in lines to, to get to enter in what we've already purchased, right? Like an amusement park where we've already paid admission, but now we have to stand in line to ride the ride. 
That's awful, right? We stand in line when we travel. I mean, there's nothing worse than going to the airport and getting stuck in the longest line known to mankind. I mean, we stand in lines for all types of things. And so I'm sitting there thinking, man, maybe lines have been vanquished. And then I realized that I was in line at a drive-thru when I was thinking this, and I quickly realized lines will always be. I mean, could you imagine going to the airport and you just walk straight through security onto the airplane? It'd be a game changer. It'd be a complete game changer. You, you go to the amusement park, you go to Six Flags or Whitewater, and you get to go up the steps, down the ride, back up the steps, down the ride. I mean, we could set personal records for like, you know, over 200 rides in probably like two hours, right? Because, I mean, you'd be sprinting down, sprinting back. I mean, it'd be fantastic. Go to the grocery store, right? Your, your significant other has that hankering for some chocolate chip cookies. And so you rush to the grocery store and you go back to the, you know, where they are. You find it, you walk up, and there's no line. You just get to immediately purchase them and you're back home, right? I mean, there's lines. What's awful about lines is we work to earn money to buy things. And when we stand in line to buy things, we are spending our time that we could use to earn money to buy other things to buy one thing that we already spent time on to get. Lines are terrible. But why do we all stand in line? We have to, is one. But two, we often stand in line for things that we love. It's really the number one thing. I mean, who in their right mind says, yep, I'll, I'll wait here, unless it's for something that we think we love or for someone that we love. And so if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, we're going to be looking at the most bizarre story in all of the Bible, which is a pretty radical claim to make, but I'm not the only one that has made that. We're going to look at the most bizarre story, and we're going to see how it shows us the day that Jesus stood in line. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. One. Hosea chapter 1 is going to be on page 899 in the Bible underneath your seat or underneath the seat in front of you because we care and we want you to, to see this with your own eyes because it's such a bizarre story. I don't want you to take my word for it. No, please don't. You're going to want to see this with your own eyes because I can't believe this word, there's a word used in this passage that I didn't think would ever make it into the Bible. Hosea chapter 1. One. And in order for us to understand this story, we're going to pause and we're going to say a word of prayer because we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to guide us. So will you bow your heads with me? Father, Lord, we thank you for this moment and we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to show up to this church to look at perhaps the most, but if not one of the most, bizarre stories in your storybook. And so, Lord, we thank you for this story in advance because we know that it's going to really speak to our hearts because that's the God that you are. And so we just ask that you would give us a humility and that you would take away any distractions so that we can hear you. For we're praying this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. So in order for us to understand this story, we have to take a trip to the 8th century. So we're in the 8th century, and Israel, the nation of Israel, is divided into two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Judah, and you have the kingdom of Israel. And for some reason, this time, towards the latter end of the 8th century, is a time of economic prosperity. I mean, your dollar actually means what it means. 
So you walk up and you purchase something and you're not paying, you're not, you're not paying too much for something that's of lesser value. No, this is, it's in a time of economic prosperity. Israel and Judah are doing well. They're at the end of the reign of two different kings who have been maybe less evil, but they're, they're not necessarily the greatest. And, and that is the timeline that we find ourselves in, in this story, that is absolutely bizarre. See, God is about to call a man by the name of Hosea. And see, God sees Israel, sees Judah, sees the, sees the Israelites as a whole, and because of their economic prosperity, because life is so great, it seems, they've drifted from their relationship with God. And isn't it just almost so true? It's, it's, it's definitively true that when we get comfortable, when things start to go well, we take our eyes off of God. We forget that he's the one that is actually giving us these blessings. The reason Israel is in this state of economic prosperity, the reason life is so great and you can recline and you can take that vacation and, and your boss isn't calling you in because it's crunch time because we really, really, really need to get the sales, otherwise we're going to go under. No, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's, hey, take some time off. In fact, here's a nice bonus. The reason for that. It's because all the neighboring kingdoms around Israel are caught up in infighting and disunity. So it's not even because Israel's economy is booming because of their trade. It's because all of the surrounding nations, in particular Assyria, who's a war machine, they're just caught up fighting with one another, trying to figure out what's the next move before they eventually march on Palestine. And so God calls this man by Hosea to a very difficult task to speak to people who are caught up in their comfort, who don't want to recognize that they're actually on the verge of something terrible and that they've actually drifted from their relationship with God. And so how do you imagine Hosea would feel when he gets asked what he's about to be asked? But before we can go to that, the setting is almost too perfect for me not to bring up one of my favorite quotes from the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. See, so C.S. Lewis writes this book, Screwtape Letters, and it tells the story of almost these little devils who are, who are working for Satan, and their primary task, it's from the perspective of Screwtape, and he's, their primary task is basically distract us, to get us distracted from our relationship with God. He says this, an, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style to get man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our Father's heart. This is what's happening in the time of Israel in the 8th century, in Hosea's day. The Israelites think, yeah, we're doing well. The economy is booming. Everything's going well. I can take that vacation. I don't have to worry about losing my job. Everything seems good. But in reality, they're exchanging their relationship with God for things that are absolutely meaningless. And so I think that we will actually find ourselves in this story because when we get comfortable, we tend to put God on the back burner and we tend to let God have his place, but it's kind of over there in the corner because we've got some other things that we have going on. But Hosea is called to be a prophet. Now, the call of a prophet is a difficult call. Anyone here ever wanted to be a prophet? Have mercy if you want to because if you want to be a prophet, you're going to be asked to do some rather difficult things. You ever been asked to do something difficult? I mean, what happens when you're asked to tell a lie, and if you lie, it'll get you, it, it'll help you out, but 
it's a lie, right? Like, how do I look in this? And if it's not, if it's not beneficial, and you, you don't want to say, uh, you know, because it's just not good, right? So you have to, you're caught between a rock and a hard place, right? You ever been asked to do something difficult? Prophets are asked to do the most difficult thing because they're called to be the mouthpiece of God. Not just to proclaim what God wants to say, but to also embody it. The prophet Isaiah was asked to go through a city. At that time, Isaiah 20, verse 2, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Isaiah was asked by God to go through the cities, but naked for three years. You want to be a prophet? And the reason he was called to do this was because he was to model the message that Egypt and Ethiopia were about to be sacked by the Assyrians and everyone taken as a prisoner of war was going to be led off to Assyria naked. That was Isaiah's message. But then we have Ezekiel who got to play with Bible Legos because he's told to take a brick and to write Jerusalem on it and then to build up this, this siege-like scene. And he's told to also, as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days. 390 days. Could you imagine laying on your left side for 390 days? Man, you would have to have some serious muscle to not cramp, to not get, I mean, you'd be so tight when you stood up, but then God goes on and tells Ezekiel later, once he gets up from laying on his left side to lay on his right side, but thankfully, it's only 40 days. It's not 390 days. You want to be a prophet? Isaiah and Ezekiel's prophetic ministry to embody the message that God wants to give to Israel pales in comparison to the story of Hosea. Hosea, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. So the scene 8th century, time of prosperity, last generation before the Assyrians and their war machine come and march on Palestine. Hosea is is called to the prophetic office, and this is his task. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Hosea is told to go and marry a woman who is unfaithful, who will be unfaithful, and to have children with her. Why? Because Israel has forsaken God. Can you imagine Hosea's thought process when he gets this call? Oh, God. Um, Appreciate you, God. Really appreciate all that you've done. I really think you're looking for the other Hosea. I mean, similar name, I understand how you could get that confused, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not like God is just easing Hosea into the call, into the office of being a prophet, right? It's, it's like sometimes we are when we're at a swimming pool or the ocean, and we're like, well, I wonder how cold it is, right? And so we do these tactics, like we step just to our ankles, and then we get 
you know, we get used to it. And then we go up to the kneecaps, right? And then we, and then we keep going to, as we descend into the ocean so that it's not like a jolt to our system, right? Or the pool where you just you dip your toe or you pay somebody else to jump in and tell you how, how it feels, which really doesn't help you at all because you're going to still have to go through it, right? No, Hosea is not slowly eased into the office of being a prophet. He is told at the very beginning of his call, go and marry a woman who my Bible says is a harlot, which is a very, very, uh, it's not a well, well-known word nowadays. The New Jerusalem Bible translates it completely differently and says, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom. Can you imagine Hosea's thoughts? God, why? Why me? Why would you ask me to do this? But Hosea, being faithful to God in verse 3 says, the Bible tells us, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now this story is so bizarre because it seems like, God, why would you do this? Of all things that you could ask Hosea to do, why would you do this? Why ask him to give this message, to embody this message? Because it's so bizarre, scholars have essentially said this can't be true. No way God actually asked a prophet to go and do this. No way. But they're going to have a difficulty with verse 3 because verse 3 tells us that he went and he took a wife by the name of Gomer. Now, if you're making up a story and it's an analogy, you probably don't give the name of the wife. But then you definitely don't give the name of the wife's father because then you can trace lineage. And so we know this is a literal story. This is not some analogous, some, you know, some illustration. No, this is a legit incident. But Hosea is faithful, and he goes and he marries Gomer, and they have children, and their children have very prophetic names, but that is for another sermon. Can you imagine when Hosea says, finally musters up enough courage to go and do this? He's a prophet. He's known in his, in his community as being someone that is faithful to God. He's somebody that goes to church. He often attends the synagogue. He's somebody who every word on his mouth is building up, not tearing down. And so can you imagine as he leaves his house to go and find a, a, a woman who has a tendency to be unfaithful? She's probably not hanging out in the neighborhoods that Hosea hangs out in, and so he has to leave his house. And can you imagine if he maybe times it at the right time of day to where his neighbors are out grocery shopping so that they don't see him leave? I mean, who knows? I can only imagine the mental anguish that Hosea might have. But he goes and he marries Gomer and they have a wedding. And think of all the joy that a wedding brings. There's, there's the reception with food that nobody remembers what it was. But there was food there. There's joy. There's, there's this, uh, you know, there's this, the beauty of what the future holds. And then there's a child. And then here comes the first child. And you get to see the, the, your, your son. And then there's a second child. And you get to see your daughter. And then there's the third child. And there's so much beauty to the story. And if the story ended there, we could take some, some theological points and, and tie it to how God loves us. But the story doesn't end there. See, Gomer has a tendency to be unfaithful. And so Gomer leaves. 
leaves her children, leaves Hosea, and the Bible tells us that she gets caught back up into a life of unfaithfulness. In fact, it gets worse. She somehow ends up in bondage. She somehow ends up having a price over her head. Now she's no longer just being unfaithful to her husband, but she, has, uh, she is being purchased. Can you imagine Hosea's thoughts? What does he tell his kids when they ask, where's mom? Can you imagine what his friends ask? Where, hey, how's the marriage going? You know, and he quickly deflects and says, hey, did you catch that game last night? Hey, did you, uh, did you, did you see what ha- was happening on the news? Hey, did you hear what's happening actually outside in Assyria? Did you hear about the, the crazy coup that's happening there? And, you know, I mean, he probably quickly deflects when people ask him about his marriage. And you would think that being a prophet, even though it's incredibly, it's a difficult task, that Hosea might have a sense of relief. Like maybe he, he's done with the office of being a prophet. He won't be asked to do anything difficult ever again, to embody this message from God. But we find in Hosea chapter 3 that, that God has other plans. See, in Hosea chapter 3, we see that God comes back to Hosea, and beginning in verse 1, page 900 in the Bibles, uh, in the Pew Bibles, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her companion, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Hosea is told to go again. In fact, this is, this is such a difficult passage, this is such a bizarre story, that people try to read too much into the text. And so they try to say that this is Hosea getting married a second time to somebody completely different. But that doesn't stand up with what God is saying when he says, look, I have never left you, nor have I forsaken you, and yet you have left me time and time again. So why would God ask a prophet, who's supposed to be his mouthpiece, to then say, okay, your wife left you, now go find another wife? It'd be inconsistent with God's love ethic of refusing to give you up. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, we find that God says, look, I... You might separate from me, but it will not be me that signs the divorce papers. It has to come from you. You can separate, but I will not divorce. I will wait. I will wait. And so Hosea is told, he's, he's told, go again. And so can you imagine as he, as he leaves his house to go and get Gomer, his wife, and he finds her in a state of bondage. Because we read in the Bible, in verse 2, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. He buys her, her freedom. She had somehow, in the process of having left Hosea, ended up in such a terrible state that she is now owned. 
And yet here comes Hosea. That is his wife. He already has a legal precedent to her. They're married. We find no account in the story of papers being signed. There's no, there's no finalization. And yet he has to pay for her. Because he loves her. That was the call. Go again, Hosea, and love Gomer, who is yet loved by another companion, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, who turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin cakes, really. Some have speculated that raisin cakes were some special offering to a, you know, to some type of, of God that had been adopted by the Israelites because it, it almost seems unfathomable that Israel would turn from God to these just very generic things. That they would turn from the God that has drawn so close to them, that has delivered them time and time again, a God that wants to be so near to us that God is so real that he changes our whole perspective on every situation. Where we wake up and we spend time with God, not in the sense where it's like this formulaic prayer or this formulaic Bible reading, but no, we truly, like the, like the hymn says, we walk and talk with Jesus along life's merry way. We walk and talk. A living faith. And yet they had turned from that to raisin cakes which was just a delicacy. It was just a luxury. It was, it was completely vain. It's the smallest thing. It's like saying we're going to trade our relationship with God for a Twinkie. Anyone would say that's, that, that, that'd be the, the silliest trade of all time. And yet, how often do we do that? Where we, we say, God, I love you, yeah, but our actions say otherwise when we don't spend time with him. When we say, God, I'm, I'm, I, I care about you, and, and yeah, I want to do your work, but our actions say otherwise when we never pray for the salvation of those around us. When we don't get together and pray for our friends that we know don't know Jesus, don't know the story of Jesus, do we actually care about his work? Or do we just like to say that? And so here's Hosea, and he's told to go again, and he goes, and he purchases Gomer. What if Hosea had to stand in line to purchase Gomer? What if he leaves his house, and this time, instead of wondering what his neighbors might think, or no, he gets up and he says, yeah, God, I'm going back and I'm, taking, I'm getting my wife. And he gets there, and he's probably thought through all of the situations where he, he has the, the cleverly articulated argument of, that's my wife. And he gets there and he finds her in bondage and, and he asks and says, yeah, that's my wife. That's, that's who I've married. Here are the pictures of our three kids. I, and let, me, let me pull out my wallet. and, and uh, there's, there's, Here's our three kids. Here are their names. And this is where the schools they go to. And, and the man uh, is having none of it. And says, if you really want her, you're going to have to purchase her. And Hosea probably finally coming to the realization that that's probably the only way that he leaves with his wife. Says, okay, fine. I'll buy her. I'll purchase her freedom. And then the man says, then you have to go get in line. Can you imagine if Hosea had to stand in line to buy back his wife? And yet here is a prophet who simply asked 
to live out a message that is so serious for us today. So serious. It's perhaps the most serious message. Because in this story, we're not Hosea. We are Gomer. Because we often turn to left or to the right when it comes to our relationship with God. And we might wonder, God, why would you do this? Why, not only why would you ask Hosea to do this, but why would you still love us? God, why would you still love me when I relapsed again? When I got caught back up in that addiction again? When I, when I lost my temper with my child or with my spouse again? God, why would you still love me when every time I step outside the door, I tend to bring dishonor to your name through my actions? Why, God? Why would you still love me? Well, Hosea, chapter 11, God asks us a question. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, a name of intimacy with Israel? How can I surrender you, O Israel? So when we ask God, God, how could you still love me when I have strayed left and right time and time again, when I've fallen short time and time again, how could you still love me, God? And God says, how can I not? Because I chose to. In fact, later on in the passage, the prophet speaking on behalf of God says that when considering giving us up, his heart recoils within him. It breaks his heart. The very thought of saying, I'm going to let them go. Breaks his heart. That is the God of the Bible. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Because we were bought with a price. Not with a price of, of you know, perishable things like gold or money. It wasn't like somebody put it on the tab and, and put down you know, stacks of, of dollar bills. It's not, not with that type of price. No, we were purchased with something of infinitely more value. The life of Jesus purchased us. That's what Christianity is all about. We were bondaged in, in, uh, in sin. We were a slave to sin. And Christ came to set us free. And so we, now we live as ambassadors of Christ because we've been redeemed. We've been set free. I mean, that's the message of Christianity. Is that we have a God that loves us so much that he refuses to let us live within a bad story. In fact, he stepped into our story and has rewritten it with a better ending if we choose. And so we were bought with a price. God ends his story in Revelation. He, he, Revelation is all about the revelation of Jesus. It's all about uh, who God is, what Jesus has done. Because really Jesus is the true Hosea. And we are the true Gomer. And so Jesus has told us in Revelation chapter 3 that when we thought we were wealthy, when we thought we had all of these luxuries, when we thought we had it under control, in fact, we don't. When we thought we had the right clothes, we're told that Actually, we don't have the right clothes. We're, we're naked. Because we need the righteousness of Christ. We need God's character. We need Jesus. 
And when we thought that we had faith or we thought we had money, no, we're told to buy of him faith that is refined in the fire. And then we're told that we need eye salve. We need to be able to see what God is doing. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to discern what he has been doing. You know, this week I had my first ever sty. You know what a sty is? It's horrendous. I, I, I wouldn't wish that upon an enemy. Uh, it's, it's, like your, it's like a pore gets swollen or gets blocked in your eye. I mean, it's awful. And the entire time, I couldn't help but wish that I had some eye salve that could just rid me because my eye was painful. I mean, I can't even wink. I can't wink because I can't close my left eye or my right eye by itself. And so I, I couldn't even go about the house with like, you know, one eye closed. I had to literally cover my eye. It was awful. And yet for many of us, we walk around without God working through us so that our eyes are painful because we don't see what he's up to. We don't have the eye salve that he calls us to have. But in the passage, he actually tells us this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. What I was thinking about this week, as I was thinking about all the positives that perhaps COVID has vanquished for all time, and I, and I really had the optimism that maybe I'll never have to stand in line ever again because I quite frankly hate lines. And then I realized that I might make Jesus stand in line I might make Jesus stand in line sometimes for him to knock on the door of my heart. I mean, there's Hosea told to embody this message of God's love, of, re- of a refusal to give up his wife. Goes and he finds her and she's in bondage because she's unfaithful and she's given herself over and it's gotten worse and she seems like there's no way that she can get out. And there's Hosea paying for her. But the thing is, is God's love is not one where he forces himself on us. That's not who God is. God is not coercive. He's not forceful. He's not, in no way, shape, or form is God going to say, you have to. Which means that Gomer had an option to say no. She could have said no. Which means that as Hosea stands to buy back his wife, after he pays the money, He then has to go to Gomer and tell her, I paid for you. I've set you free. Everything's covered. But she still has to receive that. Jesus tells us that he stands at the door and knocks. And for Jesus, sometimes he has to stand in line because we are caught up in so many other things just for the opportunity to knock on the door. And yet, Jesus will stand. He'll stand. He'll stand in line. He'll wait. Somebody else might get out of line. He'll just keep moving up, keep moving up. He'll get there, and he'll knock on the door. And if you don't answer, Jesus will go, and he'll get back at the end of the line. And he'll keep going. And he'll keep going to get back up to the door to knock again. And if you don't answer, he'll just go back to the end of the line. Because his love is everlasting. That is the love of God. Have you been making Jesus stand in line in your life? To where you get caught up. Perhaps you've, 
Perhaps you've gone and you've allowed your, your job because your job is really stressful right now. And so it's infringed upon your time with Jesus. And so you've said, God, I know you understand because you love me. And so, you know, it's just really trying time for me right now. And so have you allowed your job to become the primary God of your life to where it dictates your schedule? Have you allowed that relationship to dictate your schedule, to dictate your emotions so that you're not getting that time with God? Whatever it is that's causing you to, to maybe feel distant, it's not because of God's love for you. It's because of our response to it. And so are you making Jesus stand in line so that he can knock on the door of your heart just to tell you, I've bought you, I've redeemed you, and I love you. We don't have to go through this anymore. For it says in Hosea, at the conclusion of his book, one of the most fitting conclusions in Hosea 14, verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Hosea was asked to give a really difficult message, to embody it, and yet he was faithful to the end. But Hosea is just a man. And we might not be asked to do the same thing Hosea was asked to do, but we've all been asked to do one thing. And that is to be ambassadors of Christ to help seek and save those who are far from Jesus. And so are we doing that? Are we praying for those that we know don't have a relationship with God? Are we giving everything that we have? Or are we fascinated with raisin cakes? Things that are just completely vain. Because there's a work to be done. And it's a marvelous work. It's the work of just telling other people how much Jesus loves them through what he has done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Hosea, even though it is a rather bizarre story, but it's a, it's a powerful story. Because, Lord, here is a man who was just like us, and yet you asked him to embody your message of unfailing, always faithful love. And he did it. He did it to the best of his ability. And so, Lord, as we hear this story, maybe you've been knocking on our hearts. Maybe we've drifted. Maybe we've allowed other things to come in that have severed our relationship with you or have started that severance. And so, Lord, I just pray that anyone who, who feels that knocking on the door of their heart, that they would open the door because you have said that you'll come in. You have said that you just want to you, you tell us that you've bought us, you've purchased us, and that you love us. Lord, we thank you for Sabbath. We thank you for what you're doing through this church. But we know that ultimately it's all about our relationship with you. And so, Lord, show us the areas in our lives where we might have a Gomer-like tendency and renew us according to your love. For we're praying this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen.